If I say squirrel, at least some of you will know what I am referencing. It's that delicious scene from Pixar's Up where Doug, the appropriately named dog, gets distracted. Now, we've all got our squirrels. I mean, there's a whole industry in Silicon Valley hell-bent on creating squirrels just so our attention is pulled here and there and everywhere. And, you know, it's not just about time spent on, say, TikTok. It's really the big question for me is, how do you keep coming back and finding the focus to do the work that really matters? Welcome to Two Pages with MBS, the podcast where brilliant people read the best two pages from a favorite book, a book that has moved them, a book that has shaped them. John Zeratsky has been part of Silicon Valley. He was a design leader at YouTube and Google Ads, but his focus has changed. And as it changed, he started asking the bigger questions. And that's why I now know him as the co-author of a couple of books. One, Make Time, How to Focus. And the other one called Sprint, how to solve big problems and test new ideas in just five days. Along the way, I really fell in love with, with writing and, and using it as a, a way to um, help me extract some of the meta lessons about the work that I was doing. Um, and that's become kind of my, my obsession and my mission is really uh, helping people make time for the, the things that matter to them, the work that matters to them, help them focus on the things that matter. Um, and that's really the 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 focus of of what I'm doing with this this new fund as well um, is just a vehicle to give people the the time and you know resources the money uh, that they need to to take a shot at something that's really important to them. The venture capital fund is called Character, and John makes it his mission to help very early startups succeed. One of the best ways to succeed is to do something that is both simple and difficult. To me, the, the best way to figure out whether something is worth doing is to create some realistic but but incomplete version of it, something that's real enough that when somebody sees it, they aren't going to have to think too hard. They're just going to be able to react in a very real sense and say, oh, yeah, this is interesting, or I don't get it, or what is this again? Um, and and just try to um, try to make that conversation very real. So you're closing the distance between the creator and the customer or the user. Now, the world can be a bit judgmental. And I think it does take courage to share the things you've made and you care about and you're invested in. So how do you go about finding the right people to tell what's going on, to find out what they think? If you clearly define, I'm making this for these people, and then you just go find like five of those people, you don't have to find a ton, but if you can just find five of them, um, it's it's a, it's not that scary because if the five people hate it, it's only five people. It's not like you announced to the world, look, I made a thing and then nobody, you know, nobody cared. Um, but it's also very, it's very human. It's very unmediated. You can just talk to those five people and, and you can, um, you can learn what they think. See, it keeps coming back to focus, the right things, the right people. And the book John chose to read takes focus, I think, to a deeply human place. One of the books that has, has totally stood out um, is called Wrapped. It's by Winifred Gallagher. It's this amazing book about um, the power, the importance, the uh, essentialness of, of attention and focus and, and how um, what you pay attention to really defines your reality to a much greater extent than um, 
than what's happening to you. Um, and she uses the example of uh, uh, being diagnosed with cancer. Um, so, so this was an experience that Winifred right. went through. Um, and and just learning that even though this this very bad thing was happening to her, if she consciously directed her attention toward the things that she wanted to experience, she could change her experience of life. Um, right. She didn't have to be a, a victim or a subject of uh, the you know the world that was impacting upon her. Yeah, it, I I haven't read this book, so I'm interested to hear the pages you choose from it. But just as you describe it, it somehow sounds like um, a dance partner partner in some way to kind of cognitive biases, which is like how you pay attention influences the cognitive biases that you build for yourself and how you see the world. Yeah, I think it was one of the first books. I read that got me thinking about things like cognitive biases, about behavioral science, about yeah. um, this very interesting and and messy topic of why we do what we do, or why we think exactly. what we think, or why, why we experience what we experience. Um, right. You know, it's it's we're so privileged to be able to think about these things, right. um, but it's but it's it's endlessly fascinating. And I I read this book. Um, it's let's see, 2009 it came out, and I must yeah. have read it shortly after it um, came out. When I was I was still living in Chicago, and I had been um, going through a period where I was my job at Google um, had started to be a lot of administrative work and mm. and not so much design work, and I was really struggling with um, just how I was spending my time, um, feeling like I wasn't getting anything done, even though I was busy. Yep. And this book just was really came at a perfect moment for me um, and set me down uh, in many ways, set me down a path of, of all the work that I've done since then, the, you know, right. the, the design sprint process, the, my second yeah. book, make time um, just, you know, really trying to um, trying to, for myself, help myself, and then ultimately help others apply a lot of these lessons in the science to helping us all make, make better use of our time. I love the, I love that. I love this book being a kind of domino to a first domino to kind of opening up doors to a bunch of other things that you've done. Um, well, knowing that, knowing that it's about w where you pay attention, what two pages have you selected? This is also a bit of a meta moment. <laughs> what, what two pages are you paying attention to about this book about paying attention? It is. And, um, one of the reasons that I enjoyed, um, have enjoyed you know this invitation and getting to do this was that it it gave me a reason to to revisit this book and go mm. back to it and um and and review it and pick out the two pages with with your helpful prompt to not just read the first two pages because right. it's a, it is a well written book it's one of those classic sort of nonfiction big idea books where you really could just read the introduction probably and right. you would get you would get eighty to ninety percent of the of the core message. You may not yeah. get all the references and the nuances, but, um, but I, I, I enjoyed the challenge of having to, to dig a little <laughs> bit deeper into the book. And, um, yeah. I also, I, th th as another, just small tidbit, this was one of the first books that I read on Kindle. Oh. Um, so I must've gotten a Kindle for the first time. Cause when I looked at my library, it was like the very, it was like in the, the first couple of books. Nice. Um, and the nice thing was I had some, I made some highlights in Kindle, some, uh, yeah. you know, you can highlight the text and it right. keeps track of it. Um, so I was able to go back and see what did I highlight when I read it at the time, well, that's interesting. Um, which was a, was a sort of breadcrumb trail to get back to some interesting pages. Well, what, let me, let me do a formal introduction and then we'll, we'll hear your two pages of which I'm excited. Um, we have John Zaratsky reading 
Winifred Gallagher's book, Wrapped. As the expression paying attention suggests, when you focus, you're spending limited cognitive currency that should be wisely invested because the stakes are high. At any one moment, your world contains too much information, whether objects, subjects, or both, for your brain to represent or depict clearly for you. Your attentional system selects a certain chunk of what's there, which gets valuable cerebral real estate, and therefore the chance to affect your behavior. Moreover, this thin slice of life becomes your reality, and the rest is consigned to the shadows or oblivion. Attention's selective nature confers tremendous benefits, chief of which is enabling you to comprehend what would otherwise be chaos. You couldn't take in the totality of your own experience, even for a moment, much less the whole world. Whether it's noise on the street, ideas at the office, feelings in a relationship, you're potentially bombarded with stimuli vying for your attention. New electronic information and communications technology continually add to the overload. By helping you focus on some things and filter out others, attention distills the universe into your universe. Along with performing the Apollonian task of organizing your world, attention enables you to have the kind of Dionysian experience beautifully described by the old-fashioned word wrapped, completely absorbed, engrossed, fascinated, perhaps even carried away, that underlies some of life's deepest pleasures, from the scholar's study to the carpenter's craft to the lover's obsession. Some individuals slip into it more readily, but research increasingly shows that with some reflection, experimentation, and practice, all of us can cultivate this profoundly attentive state and experience it more often. Paying rapt attention, whether to a trout stream or a novel, a do-it-yourself project or a prayer, increases your capacity for concentration, expands your inner boundaries, lifts your spirits, but more important, it simply makes you feel that life is worth living. That's wonderful, John. Thank you. I mean, it's beautifully written. She, I mean, anybody who's throwing out big words like Apollo, Apollonian and Dionysian, Apollonian. I'm like, okay. <laughs> I think right, that yeah. means um, Apollonian is kind of the rational and the Dionysian is the more kind of emotional and uh, yeah. and sensory-based. Um, yeah. What is it about that that struck a chord for you, John? The So I think there, there were two big messages um, from this book that this passage captures um, yeah. together, um, which is, I think, why I like it. The first is that your, your experience of the world is really defined more by what you pay attention to than by what happens to you. And she captures that with that phrase, um, the universe becomes your universe. Yeah. So you fil you're filtering down from, from everything to just the things that, that are in your view. Um, and, and if you, you're not intentional about it, it's, it's like, it's sort of like habit formation. Like it's going to happen anyway, <laughs> but if, but if you're intentional about it, then, then you can, uh, you can sort of craft it and shape it the way that you want. So I think that's really important. And then the other thing is, is just this, um, this insight that paying attention makes life better. <laughs> right. And it's like, it it sounds, I think, on the surface, kind of um, like an oversell, but I think it's really true. I mean, w when you feel 
bad, it's because you're not immersed. It's because you're you torn between a million things. You're running around. You have too many meetings or emails or whatever. Um, when you feel good, when you when you feel happy, content, whatever, it's usually because you're doing something that you're deeply focused on. You're spending time with your friends, your family. You're yeah. seeing things that are so captivating. You're you're in flow, working on something. You're perf you're performing or something like that. Um, and and so I really like that um, that part of it as well. And I, I don't know. I think th th those two things together just kind of sit as as these these very complementary ideas that have have guided a lot of the the yeah. the things that I've done um, in my life. One of the one of the things that pops up in my head, John, as I hear that, is a concern actually, which is how you decide what to pay attention to, because you know we've all talked about kind of, you know, our own little echo chamber and our own little bubble and the danger of just continuing to pay more attention to what you already are paying attention to and how that, mm -hmm. how, you know, the act of making the universe, my universe becomes a, an act of limitation rather than an act of expansion or possibility. Kind of joyful yeah. absorption or expansion. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, is there a dark side to this? I think there is. I th one of the things that's so interesting about this book and about the research that it describes is that it is well. Again, I'll, I'll compare it back to sort of the um, you know the ha the science of habits. Yeah. Um, it's one of these things that that can have very negative effects, um, but can also have very positive effects. Mm -hmm. And and fortunately, not in a generally not in a third party sense, usually in a first party sense, like you can, these, these, like you can accidentally form some really bad habits that become hard to shake, right. or you can intentionally form some really good habits. And I think that's true of attention as well. I think, um, if you just follow the path of least resistance and you pay attention to the things that, mm. um, are the easiest or the most immediate or reinforce your own worldview, yeah. then I do think it can spiral to a place that is, that is very small, um, that is very closed minded, um, that maybe isn't as, uh, ultimately satisfying as it could be, even if there is some short-term enjoyment, uh, yeah. or, or pleasure from it. But, but, but I think it's so important to, to recognize this because if you recognize it, then you can take a step back and you can mm. say, wow, this attention thing, this is a big deal. Yeah. Let me slow down for a second and decide what I want to pay attention to. Yeah. Let me decide what I want to spend time on. Let me decide who I want to spend time with, what I want to read. Um, and, and the first step to doing any of that is just that awareness, I think, of, uh, of recognizing how powerful it, it is. Yeah. How do you figure out what to pay attention to? Like the, like, as she said, it's impossible. <laughs> it's impossible to take in and you'll be overwhelmed just by all the stuff coming at you, let alone what's out in the universe. It, I mean, I'm curious to know how you decide this is where I'm going to put my time. This is where I'm going to put my attention. Is it, is there some pre-work that needs to be done kind of pre-thinking around this or do you just kind of choose in the moment? I, I don't think I choose in the moment. My approach with attention and time are to, my approach is to structure 
my environment and my habits to make the the easy things, the automatic things, the right things, the things that I want to do. Mm. But the underlying question is, well, how do you know what those things are in the first place? Yeah. And I don't, I don't think I have a great answer for that. Um, I think it's very, it's very intuitive. Um, and, and I try to, one, one of my, one of my principles is to engage in activities that, um, that have sort of, uh, many feedback loops or many opportunities to, uh, to practice repetition, to get right. in reps, um, right. because, because I learned from it. And so, um, I think that that pertains to deciding what to pay attention to, because if you can, if you can choose to pay attention to something and then you can you can observe and reflect on what that did for you, mm. how that affected you, then you can, you can adjust it. You can change the, the right. environment. You can change the things you're exposed to the, the habits, whatever. Um, so, so I don't know that I have some set of criteria or some specific goal off in the future that I'm trying to, to get toward by paying attention to certain things. But I do know that I'm very intentional about, about identifying, um, you know, a guess, an educated guess. Like, I yeah. think I want to pay more attention to this, or I think I want to spend more time on this. Let's do it a little bit. Let's try it. Let's see how it goes, what benefits or costs it has, and then adapt from there. Right. You you learn you learn through doing the work and getting the feedback rather than just have the idea and then implement that. Yeah. And I can give you a, just a, a really yeah. small example. Um, yeah, I'd love that. That's not, you know, not about some big, you know, life-changing projects or anything, but it's, it's literally about, um, uh, like what I pay attention to on my phone, like what I read, um, for years and years and years, I've had, um, this app Feedly on my phone. It's like a feed reader, a news reader. Um, and this is a holdover from, uh, I worked at a company called Feedburner back in the early right. 2000s. I love I love Feedburner. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm old enough to know Feedburner and uh, yeah, a and lot of mourn its loss. Yeah, yeah. It was a it was a you know it was a tool that helped uh, people who were publishing online make sure that their content ended up in the right places mm-hmm. using RSS feeds as this underlying plumbing. And one of the things you could do with RSS feeds was the uh, readers could decide which feeds to follow. Right. In Google Reader or uh, what were the other ones called? Um, I can't even remember. Blog lines, I think, was one. Yeah. Anyway, um, th- those those products have pretty much all gone away. They've been replaced by you know, like we just see things on Twitter or we subscribe to news email newsletters. But but Feedly is one that has stuck around, and I because I have this this special attachment to RSS, I've had Feedly on my phone for for years. And I've, um, I have somewhat cultivated and, and curated the things that I follow the, the feeds and I don't have hundreds. It's, I have like maybe a couple of dozen of yeah. you know, blogs and other things that I, that I like to read, you know, over time I've decided these are worth paying attention to. Um, but I noticed a couple months ago that I was, um, not reading as many books as I used to and not reading as many long um, articles or essays as I used to. Right. And so I experimented with with removing Feedly from my phone just to see how it would go. And I, you know, it was a little bit sad to to close that that chapter. <laughs> I said a little X maybe, and it 
pops away and vanishes and you're like, that's, yeah, that's like it 15 never happened. years of my life gone. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I'm sure there's, you know, there's probably some interesting blog posts from some people I've been yeah. reading for years that I'm not seeing, but, but that's just a very small example of, of just having a little bit of awareness and saying, okay, now I'm feeling this thing. What's a possible cause of this thing? Yeah. What's a experiment I can run to see if it changes uh, how I feel about it? And so I'm just kind of constantly going through those loops. You, t you talked about the process of doing things that get feedback so you, you can continue to make better choices whether to stay the course or not as one of your principles. Are there, are there other principles that you hold to help figure out how to live a good life? There are, yeah. Um, probably the most important principle is I don't have a I don't have a pithy phrase for it, but it's sort of it's sort of an orientation toward service. Mm. Um, and I don't mean that in like a volunteering community service type of way, even though that's that's you know good thing to do. It's great. But I just mean that I have learned that my happiness and my sense of contentment, my sense of purpose, is filtered through the impact that I can have on right. other people. Um, and that's, that has informed a lot of the choices that I've made about the work that I do and, and doing things that, um, that are highly leveraged, um, right. and not in a financial way necessarily, although sometimes they are, they are, but, but, um, where my, you know, I, I know you're familiar with this too, but where I can do something, I can create something that if it is successful will right. have an impact on many people. And then those people can all take that and exactly. go and have an impact on many other people. Um, perhaps it's overly grandiose. Perhaps, uh, you know, I'm, I'm too, uh, I think too highly of myself, but, <laughs> but I just find that sort of, um, yeah. that orientation and then the application of, of leverage to be, um, to be really rewarding. So, so that's another one. Yeah. I love that. Um, Yep. I, ha I have another one. This is this is a, sort of a a mantra. Uh, I actually I have a list of mantras in my phone that I remind myself of, um, and and one of them is not really. I guess maybe it's a principle, um, but it's a. You know the artist Paul Madonna. He's a sketch artist. I don't actually know. You might know his work if you saw it. It's fairly um, recognizable. So when I lived in San Francisco, I was able to walk to work, and I walked. My walking path was took me through North Beach which is the famous Italian neighborhood where the, the beat movement, you know, was, right. was happening. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of interesting, um, American cultural things happened in North beach and, uh, city lights bookstore. I love that is bookstore, a bookstore yeah. that is, is will forever be associated with Jack Kerouac and, and the beats. And, uh, they had a, a poster for a Paul Madonna book in the window of that bookstore that I walked past every day for <laughs> years. And I think it's the title of a book by Paul Madonna. Everything is its own reward. Ooh. And that's the, that's the mantra. So that's one of my <laughs> other principles is, is I find that most things, um, they have, they contain their own reward. They're not yeah. in pursuit of another reward, but they, many, many things, um, even things that seem bad at first, they, they usually contain some, um, inherent, value. And I, I just try to look for that. So that's another one. I love that. You know, you talked about contentment, um, you know, in service of others for a sense of contentment. And you also said happiness and you said purpose. And I hear those words often enough. I don't often hear the word contentment. 
And I'm wondering what that word means to you. For me, contentment is, um, it's a more stable form of happiness. Mm. It's like, a, you know, if, um, if happiness is the, is the dramatic, you know, mountain <laughs> peaks and canyons right. and contentment is, is rolling hills. Right. Um, so it's, uh, I think it's a better, uh, it's a better target probably, mm. um, than happiness. I think happiness is, I mean, and, and, you know, we're getting into very weird and obscure uh, differences between things, but, but I, I, for me personally, I tend to think of happiness as, um, as a, as a moment or, or the result of some relatively short-term thing, but contentment is something that I, I believe I can, um, nurture and cultivate over, over a long period of time. Um, and, and I can, I can also, I think I can experience contentment from things that I'm not actively engaged in. Whereas I yeah. think happiness tends to come more from things that I'm, I'm doing right now. or sort of ha- currently like, for example, um, uh, you know, there's some companies I worked with at Google Ventures that we invested in when I worked there. I, I really feel like I had an important effect on their success. Um, yeah. One example is Flatiron Health, which is this amazing company that makes software for uh, cancer clinics. Um, and, you know, I don't, it's been years since I worked with them, so it doesn't, it's not a source of happiness, but I do think just even thinking about that company and thinking about the work that we did with them, right. it's a source of contentment. I feel yeah. like, wow, that was a good thing that I did. If I never do anything else good, I did that good thing. Right. Uh, I feel a certain amount of contentment from that. I feel like I might know the answer to this, but I'd love to ask it anyway, which is part of a commitment to design is a commitment to failure. <laughs> And getting stuff yeah. wrong. And you talk about flat iron health and the contentment in that and seeing the, the, the role you played in that and seeing that organization flourish. Um, but I'm wondering how you manage, you know, what, you know, the stuff that doesn't work out. <laughs> um, how do you maintain contentment when it's just not, the stuff isn't working the way you want it to work? there there are a couple of things that are helpful for me one is um finding the bright spots where it did work mm. so um you know i can think of events that i've done actually one that comes to mind specifically um i um i don't do this too much anymore i have a business partner that i work with but but i used to lead um workshops based on make time right. um that would were designed for for professional teams, you know, teams that work together to kind of help them uh, get on the same page about how they think about their time and what they're paying attention to. Yeah. Um, and there was one in particular that I was really excited to do because it's at a a company um, that is quite famous, and I know some people that work there. And I was just it was a cool opportunity. It did not go well. The workshop did not go well. Like it was, it was, it was part of a, a series, a couple of days of different things they were doing. And my yeah. session got low ratings relative to the others. Um, there was a lot of pushback, negative, you know, sort of reactions right. to things. 
Um, but there was like one or two people who actually reached out to me afterwards and said that made a huge difference for me. Right. That changed how I think about my days. So I, yeah. so I try to look for those bright spots. I think that that helps me a lot. Yeah. Um, and, and honestly being a, being a, a semi public person in the sense, in the way that you are and that I am where yeah. we have, we're reachable online, we're on social media. I find that most people don't use those channels to, to tell me <laughs> bad things. Like, you know, I'm, right. I'm, I'm not famous enough for that to happen, right. but like, but occasionally people do like write me this really heartfelt email and say yeah. like, you know, wow, I read your book and it helped me with all this. Like, you know, those, those things happen somewhat automatically and they really help me. Yeah. Um, the other one is just, it's related to the, everything is its own reward. It's, it's about, um, trying to, identify the lessons from, yes. from any failure. And, and for me, what's, what's really important there is to have collaborators and partners who reinforce that or remind me to do that. Mm. So I look for people who have that orientation because I know that personally I'm more of a, it didn't work. Let's move on. Yeah. But, but if I can surround myself with people who are going to say, wait a second, let's slow down. Like what was the lesson there? Um, that, that, that helps me maintain contentment um, yeah. even when things aren't going well. What have you learned about finding those people to work with? Um, you know, it's, just, it's, it's such a joy when you find the right people to collaborate with. Um, I find I kiss frogs <laughs> and occasionally they <laughs> pop into the right, the princess, but there's a, yeah. you know, I've, you know, I've kissed quite a lot of frogs <laughs> and um, I'm wondering how, and you must see this also in your work as a venture capitalist as well around the teams at work and the teams you're working with. Mm -hmm. Have you learned, what, what have you learned over the years about how you find the, the right people? Well, I don't think it's something that I'm very good at. Um, most of the partnerships that I've made with people have been um, opportunistic. Mm. So I don't think I'm very good at intentionally seeking out um, team members or partners or or things like that. It's something I would like to get better at. Yeah. Um, but one one pattern that that does stand out for me is um, just kind of looking for people who have done a lot of stuff, tried a lot of stuff. Um, right. So, like the way that that shows up for um, the startups that we invest in through our fund is like, if so, if you look at somebody's LinkedIn and it's like, they worked at Google for eight years, right? It's like, okay, there, there might, that might be a really, really valuable experience. Clearly they're a smart person. They're talented yeah. versus somebody who like they co-founded a startup, but it only lasted a year, which clearly means it failed. And then mm -hmm. they were like, they were like an early employee at its other startup. And then they like, they did the side project. Like maybe they contributed an open source thing or they wrote a book or like, yeah. you know, like just some of that track record of like, you tried a lot of stuff, but you're still going, which means you probably have a pretty good, uh, yeah, attitude undaunted. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah. yeah. And then, and then I try to, I try to tease that out by talking to them as well. Like, yeah. like, you know, I, I, I tend not to hit people with the, tell me about your biggest failure and what did you learn? Right. Uh, you know, that's maybe better for on stage or something, but, but like, I just, I just sort of ask people to take me through. So like, what happened? What happened next? Like, how yes. did that project go? Like, what happened there? And and I think it's usually um, 
it's usually pretty clear what their attitude is about yeah. failure. Um, now that doesn't help with the, the top of funnel. It doesn't help. And that's what I was saying. The thing I'm not very good at is sort of intentionally, uh, finding those people. But I think once, yeah. once they're close to me, then I can, I can sort of, um, evaluate them in a, in a pretty good way. Yeah. One of the things that you're famous for is the sprint process. And you know, you write that about that in, in your first book. Um, and, you know, I'm intrigued that part of what you offer in this new company that you're part of um, is not just money, <laughs> which is, you know, yeah. what startups want, but a process as well to yeah. help them accelerate um, and work on the stuff that matters. You know, it's four or five years since you, you wrote that book and um, your knowledge of that goes deeper back in time before that. What, what shifted, if anything, over the years in terms of how you think about that sprint process and what's most important about it? There are some relatively small tactical things that have changed. Mm. Um, and it's actually been really cool because we wrote the book based on our experience at Google Ventures, yep. where we we created this method, and we were informed by a lot of influences and inputs, but but it was our thing. It was it was how we did it, and it worked for us. Um, and since we published the book, there are a few pieces, three pieces in particular, come to mind, where other people, people in the community, people who had read the book and were running sprints, they came up with better ways to do a part of it. Right. And um, and and we've sort of. Like we've gotten to know those people. We've, we've tried, we've, we've taken their techniques now. And when we run sprints, that's how we do it. Um, so that's, that's been really cool. So there, there are some small tactical things like that. Yeah. Um, I think another interesting change is that, uh, there are a lot more ways to, um, to test ideas. There are a lot more ways to validate right. whether you're, you're on the right track, um, and, and some of it comes from, from tools, um, you know, having better tools for creating prototypes or, mm -hmm. you know, there's this whole no code movement that's all about creating products or websites or whatever without having to write any code, which is right. exactly what we're doing in most cases in a, you know, in, in a design sprint is like, how can we make this thing without doing the, the plumbing part of it? Yeah. Um, so I think that's been really exciting to to expand the universe of of ways in which people can can run experiments can can validate their ideas. Yeah. Um, but I I think that um, I don't know the the, the other the, the bigger thing that comes to mind is just that I think that we you and I would probably both agree and probably pretty much anybody <laughs> listening would agree that like the world is crazier now than it was mm -hmm. in 2016 when the book came out um by whatever definition you have right. um and so i just think it's and especially when you know teams are are more often now um working remotely they're not in the same place yeah. having a a method and a process and a checklist that forces you to focus and forces you to be together as a team. Right. Like, even if like, I don't know, it, even if you do all the steps wrong or you like, you, you know, whatever, like just the fact that you and your team spent more than an hour together right. working on something is really meaningful. It was always meaningful, but I think it's become more meaningful. Um, and, and, 
that's one of the, you know, that, that's a hard thing to lead with. You know, it's hard yeah. to sell that um, as, look, I've got this great thing. It's going to make you spend time on something. Um, <laughs> yeah. So it's a, it tends to be a bit of a Trojan horse, but I think it's the, it, it um, has always been a benefit that comes through on the, on the back end, but, but has become an even stronger benefit um, as the world has gotten more distracting um, and more fragmented. It feels like it's a really nice kind of shout back or call back to the, to reading from wrapped and that whole piece around taking the moment to actively stay yeah. in the moment and stay focused on something opens up new worlds. And yeah. in, in the sprint process, you're creating a structure that forces people to stay in the moment with each other and stay with the problem and stay with the work and yeah. has the ability to perhaps create that kind of sense of that wrapped, which is such a wonderful yeah. word. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. It's been a, this has been a wonderful conversation. I'm wondering, as a final question, um, is there anything that needs to be said in this conversation that hasn't yet been said? Nothing's coming to mind. I think yeah. we uh, <laughs> we we went to some interesting places. I I'm I appreciate your questions. They were they were really thoughtful. Um, Thank you. So no, I don't have any anything that uh, I wish I could have talked about that we didn't get to. <laughs> Good. Are you happy? Are you content? Both? Neither? Happy and content, that was such a helpful distinction for me. I mean, I realize that creating this new book that I'm working on that will come out in January, that's been a process actually imbued with contentment. And it's also been difficult. I mean, I'm currently writing the seventh, yes, the seventh draft of it now. And trust me, there have been times where I have not loved the writing process or you know, sharing drafts with people and hearing back. I have no idea what your book is about. I had to abandon it after 30 pages. So, you know, not happy, but content. I have been content in doing this work. So where do you seek out and find contentment? Look, if you want to follow John's work, and I'd encourage you to do that um, on Twitter, it's at jazer, J-A-Z-E-R. Um, and he's, you know, posting summaries of books he's reading there as well. So that's worth looking at. And um, John Zaratsky, of course, is his website. Uh, spell it for you. J-O-H-N-Z or Z. Uh, Z-E-R-A-T-S-K-Y dot com. And you're a legend for listening to the podcast. Thank you. I really appreciate it. I'm hoping you're enjoying the guests. If there's one episode or one guest in particular that's really struck a chord for you, please share it with somebody. Um, this podcast definitely grows by word of mouth. And if you're willing to email somebody, text somebody, go, oi, listen to this, that might be good for them and it will certainly be helpful for me. And thank you as well if you're willing to write a blurb and a, a review on your favorite podcast app. I know it's a bit needy and a bit whiny to keep asking, but it really does make a difference. It helps the algorithms make sure the podcast get found and that helps me be able to attract better and more interesting guests, even more interesting. Well, these guests are all pretty amazing. Anyway, you're awesome and you're doing great. <laughs>